You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So last week I pick up my Bible and turn to the book of Romans to begin preparing for this message. And I read the first seven verses and I think, wow, good stuff. Here's the problem. If you'd asked me, okay, what did you just read? What did it mean to you? I'd say, good stuff. (laughs) Well, how would you say it in your own words? I'd probably go, good stuff. Because that's how I feel about reading the Apostle Paul. Now, some of you may not, and I totally understand, we have different people we connect with their writing style. And, And with Paul, I read it and I think, wow, that's good. I'm not sure what it said, but boy, it's good. You know, I'm not the only one. I bet there's some of you as well. And let me show you someone else who felt that way. His name was the Apostle Peter. He wrote this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, same guy, also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same in all his letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. No kidding, right? Wow. But read on. Which ignorant and unstable people distort. I don't want to be one of those ignorant and unstable. Why do they distort it? Because they don't understand. And my goal in this series of a year and a half studying Romans together is that we are careful not to distort or give our own interpretations, but that we try to truly understand what the Apostle Paul says. So I thought this time as I read my way, which I've never preached through Romans. We've taught it different times, but never preached my way through Romans. So I thought this time what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and learn it. I'm going to try to get what it really is saying. And and I don't know if you remember this, but back in high school or maybe junior high school, middle school, whatever you were in, you probably diagram sentences. You remember diagramming sentences? And the thing about diagramming sentences, some people liked it, some didn't. I loved it because it was organizational. I I could see something. It was visual for me. So you take a sentence like, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog, which is the typing sentence, right? And you say, now let's diagram that. And you come up with something like this. It's always the subject up on the left and the verb over here. And then if you have a direct object, that's over here. Then anything that modifies is below. So the bottom line to that sentence is the fox jumped, right? Now the fox is quick and brown, and the prepositional phrase is where he jumped over the lazy dog, but, but when I see that, I go, oh, I have a picture of the sentence, now I get it. So that's what I decided to do with Romans. I took all of the first seven verses, <coughs> excuse me, and I diagrammed them. I'll show you, for instance, here's the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I didn't diagram them technically from a grammar perspective, but what I did is, what's the subject and what's the points? And so in this case, it was Paul, and he has three things you should know about him. So I did that with the whole thing, and you know what helped me? And I'm going to do that with the whole book. No, I'm not giving you copies of it. I just wanted to show you one way I did it. But, but maybe you could do some of the same, and we could learn this book together. Today, we come to the introduction to Romans, verses 1 to 7. Now, what is the introduction? 
Many of you pick up a book to read and you're excited to read it and you see that there's a forward and you skip by the forward and get to page one. This is the forward. Tempted to skip it. Let's not. Let's walk our way through this forward and understand it and then next week we'll actually continue on in the rest of the writings of Paul. Take your Bibles, whatever... Uh, translation you want to use. I told you last week, pick the translation you like best, but bring the same Bible every week. And you can use the NIV, the ESV, King James, uh, the Revised Standard, whatever you want to use. You, you use it because I think it'll work fine as we go through this word by word. And also, if you want to take your sermon notes, grab those and let's dig our way through the forward, the introduction written by Paul. A couple things I'll share with you. Number one is upwards basketball begins in January. Actually, practices begin here soon. Um, this is our 18th year hosting Upwards at Emmanuel. It's the biggest outreach event we have, and uh, it's exciting. We, have, we will have, again, over 300 children involved in basketball and cheerleading. Um, we have over 200 already signed up. So if you'd like to get your children involved or maybe children that you know that you think might find this valuable, uh, let them know because uh, some of the grades are already full and are on a waiting list. So if you'd like to be a part of this, get signed up quickly. Just use your church app to do that. Secondly, there are four classes that are starting in midweek. One starts this week, the first one. The other three start on October 18th in a week and a half. Let me tell you a little bit about them. The first one is the Armor of God series. It's a women's class taught by Jennifer Smith. The second one is a men's class. It starts a week and a half from now, and it's uh, Experiencing God, led by Craig Mickey and several others uh, for men. And then I'm leading a class, uh, teaching a class on conflict resolution. It's only three weeks because that's all it will take for us to resolve all of our conflict. So we'll, we'll do a three-week class on conflict resolution. And then uh, Dan Friend is doing one on the Moses controversy. Did Moses really write those first five books? And so uh, fascinating topic, obviously studying a book that says, yes, he did, and here's why. So any of those sound good to you? Again, get online, sign up. Classes are limited. We encourage you to be a part of one of them. There are two things that I want to teach you in this series that I'll say each week. Number one, God's eternal qualities are easily seen and known by anyone who chooses to see them. It doesn't matter if you live in the United States or in Europe or in the Far East or in Africa. It doesn't matter where, even in a remote part of the world, God's eternal qualities are easily seen. Now, we'll talk more about that in the next two weeks, but... That's an important lesson that we need to learn. We'll talk about it anymore today. Secondly, for those who trust Christ, God's righteousness is also revealed. You will see his righteousness as you know him, and it will be given to you, imparted, says the book of Romans, to you. You will have his righteousness. And I know many of us think that we're not righteous in ourselves, but yes, we are in Christ. Again, we'll talk about that more the next two weeks. So I'll do a quick review with what we learned last week. Last week, we did a big overview of the whole book. So let's just kind of walk our way through just a couple of thoughts. The book of Romans was the trigger, the catalyst for almost every revival that has happened since the time of Christ. If you look at whatever one you want to talk about, the Reformation or the Great Awakening or whatever, you'll find 
that Romans was at the center of it. And I say that because here we are beginning the study of Romans and I think it will be a catalyst for us. I think it's going to challenge us and shape us and draw us closer to Christ. Secondly, this letter is unique in that it's a theological document. It's different than all the other letters of the New Testament. It's a theological document that Paul wrote to a church, a city, Rome, that he'd never been to. Very unusual for Paul. Usually he goes to a place, starts a church, and then writes a letter back. This is a church he's never visited. And we'll talk next week how much he desires to go see these people. Thirdly, the theme is the gospel. And the author, and this is, I think, maybe my favorite part of his writing style. The author asks 58 questions and then answers them. It starts in chapter two, it goes through chapter 14. And he says something like this, should we keep sinning so we get more grace? Question mark. Now here's what I wanna ask you to do. When you do your own reading at home and you're in Romans, every time you come to a question mark, pause. And think about it, what's my answer? And then read Paul's answer. It's a teaching style that I think is wonderful and it's a great teaching tool. Okay. The outline of the book is this, in really five parts. The last part is mainly names, and we'll talk about that for a couple of weeks, uh, some time from now. But these are the five major parts of the book. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. It's so well laid out, as you would expect from the Apostle Paul. Now, we are going to be in sin for the next three months, okay? You can tell people that our church is in sin for a few months. Uh, we are going to study sin through the end of February. Now we're going to take a break for the Christmas series, as we always do. But otherwise, we're going to stay in chapters 1 to 3. So you can camp there in your reading. And you might say, well, that's depressing to study sin for all that time. It is. But it makes the study of salvation so much better. That's why we're doing it. Okay. Let's go to the introduction, verses one to seven. Verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. If you lived in the first century, this is, there's this persecutor who arrests, imprisons, and puts to death Christians. His name is Shaul. Shaul is the Hebrew pronunciation. He's named for an Old Testament king, Shaul, Saul, right? He is a Jew of Jews. If you had lived in that century, you'd have said, well, God could save anybody except, your answer would have been Paul. God could save anybody but this Saul guy. Uh, maybe you feel that way about somebody right now that you know, well, God could save anybody but them. And that just gives you hope. God can reach with his grace to anyone. And he reached out to the apostle Paul, who at that time was known as Saul. And he became the missionary to the Gentiles and his name was changed to Paul. Actually, it was more of his nickname. And that's how we know him today. Paul means small. Probably he was small of stature. He wrote this letter, Romans, and he wrote 12 other letters. I gave you the list last week. But basically, if you look at your Bibles, everything after Romans down to Hebrews probably not including Hebrews, Paul wrote. So at least 13 total books. Incredible. 
Now, was he small? What did the guy look like? I, I just put the word Titus here because we just finished an eight-week study of Titus. And in Titus, I gave you a whole bunch of information about Paul. I'm not going to go back and redo that. You can go back and review that yourself if you want to. I just want to tell you one thing about Paul. What did he look like? He himself says he wasn't much to look at. But we don't know much more. We have one other extra biblical source. Now, again, this is not Bible. But this is an ancient source, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. The only description of his looks. In this, he is described as small in size. So that makes sense with his name, Paul. Bald-headed, bandy-legged, well-built with eyebrows meeting. In other words, one big eyebrow goes all the way across. And a rather long nose. Now, I don't know if that's accurate, but if it is, you look at that and say he wasn't a handsome man, except for being bald-headed. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, he wasn't a handsome man. And, and I took a picture when we were in Greece of one of the icons of Paul. This is Paul. And then what I realized is I traveled around Greece, every picture of Paul looks the same. Why? Because they use this description. Now, if that's accurate, what it tells us is Paul was not a handsome man. But God used him. And that's hope for many of us, right? We are, most of us aren't movie star looking people. But God can use any of us, no matter who we are, what we look like. And that's pretty, pretty neat. Okay, well, let me tell you what he says about himself. Three things. Number one, Paul describes himself as having made three choices. I underlined the word choices. I put a question mark behind it because probably... Those of you listening today, whether you're here in this room and another room or you're online, we probably have three different crowds. Some of you might be Reformed or Calvinistic in your, in your theology. Some of you might be Arminian or Wesleyan in your theology. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? So if you're the no idea, don't worry about it. But if you're more of, let's say, the, uh, you're more of the Calvinist or the Reformed thinker, you, you believe that God has made sovereign choices, you'd say Paul didn't have choices. He was called to these three things, and it was his only choice. I mean, he had to just do what God asked him to do, called him to do. Those of you who might be Arminian or Wesleyan, you'd say, no, God always gives us a choice, and Paul chose those things. And so I use the word choices, but I use it loosely. I don't want to fight about this, Okay. I don't want to debate it afterwards. Find somebody else to debate with this afternoon. Have fun. My point here is Paul just says there's three, three ways you should know me. Number one, I am a willing doulos. Now, the word doulos, the Greek word, may not mean much to you, but to those readers who first read the book of Romans, they saw doulos and they go, oh, and immediately their minds go back to the Old Testament to two passages. I'll read just one of those two passages to you. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, but if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. Boy, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, and I don't want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. 
Some of you go, but many of you are sitting here with pierced ears, so I'm not sure why that bothers you. So you pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will be his servant for life. Now, here's the deal. You can only be a Jewish slave for six years, and then by Jewish law, you have to be set free. But suppose your master sets you free, and you go, wow, I like living where I live. I like the people I work with. I love my master. I don't want to go then you can tell your master that and he will go to the judges who will confirm it and then he takes you to a door and he takes your ear and puts it up against the door and drives an awl through it, puts a ring in it. Now today those rings don't mean as much but in that day that ring meant I'm a free man but I choose to serve my master. And that's what Paul says. I'm a free man, I don't have to do this. But I choose to be a doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ. My choice, my desire. That's the first thing you should know. The second thing you should know is he was an apostle sent by God. Now, the word apostle simply means sent one. So, so Paul was sent by God. The word called here uh, is the word, uh, to, refers to an invitation. So God invited him to come and serve as an apostle. You know the 12 apostles. You know that the one hanged himself. Some people believe that Paul was supposed to be the 12th one. I don't know the right answer. All I know that he is, by his own definition and by others, an apostle. Thirdly, he is one set apart for the gospel. And here is one place where I don't like the NIV translation as much. The ESV, the King James, any other translation says, instead of set apart right there, it says Separated. And the word separated is the better word. That's, that's what aphorizo right here means. It means to be separated. Now, why is that important? Think about it. What did Paul do? As a Jewish man, what was his title? Who was he part of? The Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what does Pharisee mean? Separated. So he says, for my whole adult life, I've been separated from foods like seafood and pork, I couldn't have that. And I've been separated from certain kind of clothes because I wasn't allowed to wear it. And I've been separated from dogs and dead bodies and Gentiles because they're unclean. He says, no more. Now I'm separated for the gospel. I'm not into those things anymore. I'm separated only for the gospel. So who is Paul? Well, You've seen, he is a doulos, a servant of Christ who has been separated for the gospel so that he can be sent out. That's his description of himself. Verse two, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the son of God, appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here's what I was talking about earlier. I read that and I go, good stuff. I'm not sure what that said. So now let's break it down. What does he say? He says, well, number one, the key thought is the gospel. The definition of the word gospel is good news. So if I share the good news with you, I'm sharing gospel. But the good news is not the gospel. The gospel itself is Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how Paul concludes, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So what is the gospel? That's Jesus. 
What should I know about it, says Paul? Four things. Number one, you should know it was promised beforehand. It was always a plan. God always planned to send his son. It wasn't an afterthought. Secondly, you should know that the prophets wrote about it. We do this at Christmas time, don't we? We talk about, you know, Bethlehem was where Jesus is to be born, and this is going to be his name, and, and he will be born of a virgin, and all of those things we, we read about in the Old Testament. We know that it's been prophesied. Thirdly, we know that Jesus is the Son. But here's where you want to pause, because Paul says he's the son of two fathers, He's the son of David. Now, of course, he is, means simply a descendant of David. He's in the line of David. But the point there is he is fully man. Jesus was fully flesh, fully just like us. But he was also declared to be the son of God by the Holy Spirit. So that makes him fully God. So he was fully man and fully God. Now, the word for declared, I, you may not be able to read the Greek Letters, but here's the transliteration of it. Horizo. Can you think of an English word that we use like that? Put, a, put one letter at the end. Right. Horizon. Now, that's the word declared. So, in other words, I go out to a big lake or I go to an ocean and I stand there and I look out and I see a line where the sky meets the water. And that line is the horizon. It's defined, it's clear. It's declared to be the horizon. That's, that's the horizon. Above it is the sky, below it is the water. Think about that with Jesus. He's declared to be the son of God. There's no question. But if you look above the line, he is fully God. If you look below the line, he's fully man. It's incredible. But one more thing you should know, it's been proven by his resurrection. If you have a tendency not to really believe that he was fully God and fully man, here's the proof you need by his resurrection from the dead. He's the only one who ever truly rose from the dead. Now, when I say that, I realize many of you, we've just done a study of Elisha, and we saw people come back from the dead. We know Elijah brought people back from the dead. We, we know that Jesus, for instance, the widow of Nain's son, or we know Lazarus. Lazarus, come out, come forth. So those people, you say, rose from the dead, those people are different. Those people all died fully dead, came back from the dead, fully alive, what's going to happen next to them? They're going to die again. You see, they're going to have four dates on their tomb. Born, died, life, died. Where Jesus, born, lived, died, rose, never died again. He's the only one in history who rose from the dead, physically came back from the, uh, physically came back from the dead, and will never die again. So that's the proof you need. And just so you know, Paul closes with these last four words. Jesus is the gospel and everything we need in his name alone. So let's look at his name that Paul lists, Jesus. The word Jesus is the Greek word for Yeshua in the Hebrew, which means savior. Save us, savior. So when you say Jesus, you're saying savior. His Second title, the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, you're saying Savior, Messiah. And when you say our Lord, you're saying my ruler. I find it fascinating, I really do, that people when they get angry use this name. You think, why not other names? Why don't they say like use the planets? Jupiter, Saturn, 
Or maybe you use the days, Friday, Saturday. Or what about the Greek gods? Zeus, Apollos. Instead, people yell, Jesus Christ. And when they do, you know what they're saying? Savior Messiah. And you should say, amen. <laughs> By the way, I have never heard someone say, Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because you see, that would not work. He wouldn't be your Lord if you're using his name like that. Paul tells us in another letter in Philippians that someday every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you can say it now or you can say it later. But everyone will say it. Now his calling, Paul says, through him we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles. So through Christ, Paul had received grace. He became a Christian. And a call, as many of us have received a call, maybe not as big as Paul's, but we, we've gotten a call to, be, to serve in some way. And so Paul was sent specifically to reach Gentiles. Now, this is one of the biggest ironies in the Bible. Because right now, if I told you to list the Jewish people in the Bible who were the most important or the highest Jewish people, who would you list? Well, there's a number of them. I mean, like, you could, you could list, you know, the people who helped bury Jesus. You could list Nicodemus. You could, but, you know, probably at the top would be Paul. So the top Jew is the guy who goes to the Gentiles. Why, God? God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? So he sends the top Jew to be the missionary to the Gentiles, and Paul wants you to know that's his calling. To call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's calling was to preach the obedience that comes from faith. So if you're reading the book of Romans, my guess is you're a Christian. Because I can't imagine someone who's not a believer reading it. But if you're reading it and you're a Christian, what's the point? Obedience. Now live it. If you are a follower of Christ, live like you're a follower of Christ. Let me remind you of something. Back a number of years ago, we studied our way through the book of Colossians, and I kept using the same formula, right? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You can't do a thing to earn your salvation. It doesn't. Good works, faithfulness, good genealogy, giving money, you can't do a thing to earn your salvation. In fact, throughout the Bible, it says a person is not justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. So Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, but here's the formula we don't talk about enough. Faith plus obedience equals confirmation. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but there's no obedience in their life, in other words, they just live like the rest of the world, I'd have to say, are you sure? Really? Because there's no confirmation in your life. I watch your life and you don't act any different than anybody in the world. Are you sure? So you see, obedience doesn't make me a Christian, but obedience helps to prove that I've chosen to follow Christ. And all of us who follow Christ are part of Paul's audience. And that's what I want you to see. There is no letter of the New Testament, as I told you last week, that says first and second Emmanuel. So since we can't find ourselves there, we can see this. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called. He's writing to Rome, but he's writing to all of us. Last verse, to all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his holy people, that word in the NIV is unfortunately holy people, but other translations without question, that that's the word saints. 
Grace and peace to you from our God and Father, from, the, from our God, our Father, from God, our Father. I'll get it yet. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is written to all believers in Rome. And where is Rome? Well, in that day, Rome was the ends of the earth. Remember when we read in, in, in Acts chapter one that we should go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Well, Rome was the ends of the earth. Now, of course, today we know there was much more of the world to be explored and found, but in that day, that was the end, and we're part of the ends of the earth. And we're called to be saints. Now, that's a word we don't use right in Christian circles, and I'm sad about that. If you're a Christian today, you're a saint. When you go out today, you can go, good morning, saint, and the other person can say, well, good morning to you, saint. You can use St. Smith, St. Jones, you can use whatever you want. But see, the problem is we've been kind of conditioned that saints are up there somewhere. And we're not saints. But change your thinking. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Some have taught us that, well, to be a saint, you have to be dead. And people have had to pray to you and there's miracles done and, you know, all of that happening. No, no, no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you follow Christ, you're a saint. And so Paul's writing to all of us who are saints. He then concludes with his famous greeting. We learned it in Titus. I told you to maybe reconsider saying have a good day and start saying grace and peace. And Paul does it here again. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. By the way, if you use grace and peace, always use it in that order. It doesn't work the opposite way. If you say peace and grace, it's not good. Because Grace always, I'm sorry, peace must always follow grace. Whether it's with man or whether it's with God, grace comes first, then comes peace. That's the first seven verses. I'm gonna invite our worship team up, and while they're coming up, I'd like to go back and review it with you. We've learned five things in the foreword, in the introduction. You ready? We learned that the writer is Paul. We learned that the gospel is Jesus. We've learned that the calling of Paul is to preach specifically to these Gentiles, us, most of us. We've learned that his message is let's live the Christian life, obedience. And we've learned that the, mess, the readers are all saints, all of us. And then he concludes with grace and peace. Now, here's the funny thing. I know I, I've had people last night and this morning say, wow, my head's spinning from all that material. And I know. I know it's a lot of material, but that's the foreword. How can I prove that to you? Next week, the first word. Are you ready? First. And you go, first? Man, we've already had all this. I know, says Paul. But that was the foreword. Now we're going to start our study. And so next week, read the next nine verses. And we'll study them together next week.